0: All right, here we go. Black and blonde. Feeling, race, and racism. I can feel that I'm black. (laughs) And uh, I don't know. I have no feeling. I'm blonde. I can't feel that, Natasha. You don't feel that in your bones? Mm Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Well, welcome
1: to the pod. Welcome. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's a
0: million degrees outside. It is hotter than... Yeah, it's just hot. (laughs) That's what we're going to say about that. It's been a week. It has, I mean, it has been a week. How many times on the pod do you think we start with? It's been a week. Every week. I'm, we're, t- and yet we don't always really do much, but it, it appears never that a lot do, happens. We never do anything, but it's
1: like our weeks are something.
0: They are really How something. How does that happen? I don't know. Do you, again, I think it's the slowing down and talking about your week. I wonder if everybody's week is filled with things, but. People yeah. just move through it, and they don't That's probably fair. spend 30 minutes every week spending, well, actually spending about 15 <laughs> lamenting about it. Yeah. Shall we start lamenting? Yeah, let's start.
1: What are you going to start with? Well, it's Brace's Gate. It uh, is. Caden has started the process at the tender age of six and like Oof. three quarters. Almost. I, I'm so proud of him, though. So we got his expander in this week. Just um, a champ. And he has done well, but it's been hard, like... The food situation, the sleep situation. I mean, there's a lot of... The slobber. The slobber. There's a lot of impact of this on his like regular routine and his regular health. That is just a lot. Like you would just think, okay, get some braces. Plus he's like seven. So Mm -hmm. not quite seven, almost. But you put something in his mouth that is uncomfortable. It's metal. This expander across the back of his teeth and then you ask him to try to describe it. Like he's not at a, he's not 13 when no. mo, like a lot of kids get these things to be able to explain mm-hmm.
0: what hurts, how it feels. And so it's just been. Here's a little story to just bring it to life for our listeners. So Natasha oh, tells me he has to learn to swallow. Kind of you have to, because there's this bar going across the back of your mouth. and
1: Yeah, just can... listener, just swallow right now. You don't have to think that hard about it. Your tongue just does what it's supposed uh-huh. to do.
0: Now there's this metal bar between his two back molars that whatever. So he sleepover, every time we have sleepover, pizza delivery. Like Mm -hmm. that's just become the thing. Pizza delivery, we're talking to him about take really small bites, take really small bites. And chew. And chew. Like really small bites, chew to get this food down underneath this bar, get it down your throat. Toward the end of the dinner, we hear kind of a just a small like, like a gag. Like a little gag, yeah. right? You go over there, ask him to open his mouth, and you see... N-nary, nearly
1: a full breadstick. Nearly a full breadstick and stuck on the roof of his mouth, between, wedged between the roof of his mouth and the expander. So you get a toothpick. Yes, and I'm trying to get it out, but let's just be clear. The only way to get it out is to push it back towards his throat. So I'm trying to push it, like, to the... Or to get him to spit it out. Right, but he can't get it out. Right. Like, it's wedged in there. Right. So I'm trying to get it, like,
0: back into the side so we can kind of, like, get it... I mean, it was gross. First of all, I heard... She's looking... So Natasha's doing this and then looking over at me and and making the facial expression of, like, ooh. Yeah, it was gross. (laughs) So that happened. We got her out. You got it out. You pushed it to the
1: side, got it done. Got it out. But then, I mean... It is hard for him to eat and mm-hmm. chew and just like it's a lot some of soft food. Weekend w- we're learning about you know like he's learning mm-hmm. I should say like how to chew something and when he was eating last night what was he eating last night um, was it noodles. Mm-hmm, probably. I don't know. We are watching him chew. Or no, he was having a snack and we were watching him chew and he was chewing
0: with the front of his mouth.
1: He just looked yeah. bizarre. But- I mean,
0: but he's handling it amazing. He's got to crank this thing. You you have to crank this thing for 14 days to widen this, which then we learned will also make the space between his front teeth wider, which it's already like you can... I mean, his front teeth are about to become molars. Totally. <laughs> I mean, just- the kid, I trust, I'm going to trust the process that in and the it- end, he's going to have a fully formed... Let me just teeth. say,
1: the purpose of an expander is literally to break the bone in your roof of your mouth and let a newborn bone form in the space that is broken to expand. How
0: awful. And this is what I'm doing to my child. Yeah, real awful. Okay. All right. Well, anyways, it's handling like a champ. You are as well because you do not like anything to do with teeth. I mean, my biggest fear when he was born is that he'd be born with teeth. Mm-hmm. Yes, which Broke. didn't happen. But oh all right. God. So that happened this week.
1: Well, it was also a rough week in our home for us. I was sick most of the week, but yeah. just like this weird sick like not, not no COVID. COVID. Took the tests. Um just I don't know, not good. You were off. I was
0: it was not well. You so
1: are I, a disaster.
0: What? You were a disaster. I was a disaster this week. I um little situation came up at school. I was walking um back into the building from outside and damn, if I didn't just open a big school exterior door right smack into my pinky toe! Why are you wearing open-toed shoes? And right, <laughs> my mom is like, "And for God's sakes, where get some Doc Martins!" <laughs> <laughs> like that's one of the last phone calls with her. Um, but I was walking with somebody, and it hurt so bad. But you know when, like yeah, in the you can't moment, really, like
1: fall to the ground and writhe in pain.
0: I just kept walking. But we're wa- we're like at the back of the school. I'm walking toward the front, and I just I'm continuing to like hear probably five percent of what this person is saying because I'm looking down at my toe I'm watching was like growing
1: exponentially like
0: perk come inside it it wasn't bleeding from the outside but I knew like I messed up my toe we get to the office I'm there's a meeting going on in my office there's like five people in my office that I left from and had to go back into didn't want to disrupt that so I walked past my administrative support person and I was like, please go get me a bag of ice. Real calmly. She just, I'm like, don't say, do not make a big deal. She goes to get the ice, comes back. We have this like secret ice bag handoff at my door. I take it over by my chair and I like position myself strategically behind the you didn't stool. didn't tell anybody? No, because it was a big meeting. It was well, just, who cares? You I, I didn't, anyways, set the bag of ice down, d- like dive my foot into it. And I'm just like, which it's a pinky toe. They don't, You don't do anything for pinky toes. It doesn't make any difference. My initial thought is like, fuck, I'm not going to be able to run. Like that's where my head goes to around whatever. Mine Uh, too. Anyways, so I spend the rest of the day just watching this toe get like bigger and darker and bigger and darker by the time I come It's the size of a sausage. I I (laughs) I messaged you at some point in the middle of the day and I was like, most likely broke my toe because you were like, I don't feel good. Caden's braces. I'm like, I think it broke my toe. Fine. It's better. It's better. It was gross. Caden was Caden and Maxwell thought that thing was real gross. Like Well, Maxwell really thought it was gross. Yeah. I mean, it was real dark purple on there. Anyways, it's better. And then damn to Friday, long week, broken toe, braces gate, hot, you know, nipsy doodle, like just a lot of stuff happening. You don't feel good. I am leaving work and I'm like, God, my contacts dry. Like, which happens? Get home in the yard, standing in the yard, like I've got to get this contact out. I come in, I pull my contact out in the yard. My eyes watering. I come in the house. You're like, what is the matter? I've got this big red eye. Wake up in the middle of the night. Come downstairs. I can't open my eye. It hurts. I sit, put my head under a slow stream in the faucet to try to flush my eye. Make myself go back to sleep because it's awful. Wake up! Huge pain. Go to urgent care. Corneal abrasion. I mean, it's just
1: no joke. A shit show. I mean, it's a shit show. It is. We say this quite frank uh, often on this pod. I just wonder how we make it through a week. I mean, it, for people who don't do anything, I mean, we get a lot I know. Of Anyways, happening.
0: but I think everybody's like we're all managing it. Like yeah. we're we have constructive ways to cope with what is ex- in front of us. So um, we do. We do. All right. What else is going on this week? Um, or well, went on this week?
1: Yeah, outside of our home, which was a dumpster fire, mm-hmm. was the continual dumpster fire of our country. Um, and I just want to bring this up just because we've talked about it. Um, the video from Uvalde of the officers inside the scene mm-hmm. was released. And whether you chose to watch it or not, right, up to you. The thing that gets me about the video was the fact that when they, when you see the video, there's a, I don't know, like a caption that says, edited out the sound of children screaming. I don't know if that isn't the biggest metaphor or what it is for this country, but it's like we have to edit out the sound of children screaming so that we can show the world a video of police responding or not responding to a mass shooting. It was ridiculous.
0: It was horrific. And that video was just, I mean, all the things, right? Maddening and unbelievable. Hand sanitizer. A hand sanitizer. Like, I mean, they might as well just had takeout delivered in. I mean, they could have had a. The one guy laughing. Oh my gosh! Now the
1: other guy checking his phone. I'm. I've let go
0: mm-hmm. because
1: that it it. As the story goes, that man's wife was in
0: the building. The building, so fine. But the other people, hand as sanitizer like man, the community's children. But never mind that. Um. So and, and I, you know, the thing I said to you was just. So that's a conscious decision was made to silence that noise. But when George Floyd was being murdered, like we just let his voice over and over and over ring out I and can't traumatize uh, again black people in this country. But that you know. So I just think thinking intentionally about decisions that get made and who is harmed, who are we trying to protect, um, what what messages overall do we want to try to you know put under the rug, whatever, um, just to, to, I think it's important to say that out loud. Yeah.
1: And then finally, just about the dumpster fire, the January 6th uh, commission has been going on, the um, trials or what are they called? Hearings. Hearings. Thank you. Um, and we learned that the Secret Service has deleted text related to said date.
0: Natasha, Natasha, they did, there was a pre-planned system migration that happened right around that I time. I don't want to talk about it.
1: We're not going to talk about it. Natasha, they were shifting between systems. But here's what I do want to say about that. So this January 6th hearing that's been going on, it is baffling to me. Our ability to let certain people get away with things in this world and other people not. And whether you want to put race involved in that, now I do, but whether or not you want to doesn't matter. But our country is so able to allow certain people to just get away with something and other people to not. It's it's like a rigged game. Mm-hmm.
0: And it is. I mean, I'll, I I will bring race into it. I mean, it's the power that lies within the white supremacist system and what are we trying to uphold and who has power? Yeah. And so, but um, can we move on to good news? Yeah. What's the opposite of dumpster fire? That's what I was going to ask you cuz this is not dumpster fire news. Um I don't know. Okay, we'll think about what we will. We gotta think of what is our definition our of. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um so if you didn't see, and even if you're not a big fan of space, um, the James Webb telescope. As in like outer space. Outer space, yes. The James Webb telescope showed us some new pictures of the galaxy, which we haven't seen a clearer pictures since the Hubble telescope. Amazing. And it is it is pretty fascinating. It almost looks fake because mm-hmm. it's so clear mm-hmm. and detailed and it's like it's like someone's drawing. It looks a lot like uh, the carpet of a bowling alley, mm-hmm. but it's really cool. But the thing that I thought was really cool is um,
0: the- I don't son- share that perspective, but anyways. What? The carpet of a bowling alley. I had yeah. to process that. looks just like that. Okay. The first picture. Anyway, I'll show anyways. you. Anyways. Um, so Gregory
1: Robinson, the son of sharecroppers and a HBCU grad, was actually the one who fixed, is a black man, which is why we're putting this here, who actually fixed the telescope. So this telescope, I don't know the entire story, but was commissioned- years ago. And they had some issues with it. It wasn't working. They weren't getting what they wanted out of it. And he is now, he's the one that fixed
0: it. And- Super inspiring. I think one one of the most inspiring things is just as you read about it, he never doubted that it was going to work. Like never- from the beginning, from the jump. And everybody else was like, oh, good luck. And this, Gregory was like... like I, we need to not call this the James Webb Telescope and rename it to the Gregory Robinson Totally, telescope, totally. But whatever. Um, but it somebody said that he channeled the forces, or maybe that's what he said. He channeled the forces of human nature and ingenuity, which I just think like that's, that's so awesome. empowering for a black man, son of sharecroppers. Just a little bit about his life. He began his education in a racially segregated elementary school. Um, and he shared that it was his, his teachers would tell students they could do anything they wanted if they had an education, which to him appealed because he wanted to get out of where he, Danville, Danville somewhere, um, and he wanted a better life. And so through the process of living through school desegregation, he learned how to work with uh, many different types of people. And he said, one of the things I learned is not everybody is bad who doesn't look like me. And so again, I just think like the Black man, son of sharecroppers, comes to that realization about white people who, in this country, like do a lot of harm. He can get there. That I learned that not everyone is bad who doesn't look like me. And then I just wonder, like, who, uh, you know, what, to what extent do majority white people hold that perspective? And just to to understand, like, I learned through desegregation how to get along with people who are different than me. It's just well, and I think the other
1: powerful thing about that is we've talked on the pod multiple times. Words matter, language matters. And somewhere in his education, someone told him he could do anything he wanted if he got an education. Mm-hmm. And he did just that. So like as we think about how we what is our perception of students in school? What do we believe about students in or school? Or black people in society. Or right. And, and I'm just talking yeah. about education specifically. Mm-hmm. Like what are what beliefs do we hold and how do we impart those beliefs on said individuals can have such a lasting impact. Now we can literally see this galaxy that's light years away from us because somebody had enough belief in him and made him have enough belief in himself to go ahead and continue to pursue
0: this. I thinking think of a big deal, b- very big deal, and I think you know there's a difference between. And both are required, I hold a belief, for white educators in schools, specifically around black and brown children, to believe them and believe in them. And those right. are not synonymous, they are two different things. Absolutely. And how do you do that? I'm gonna tell you right now, like kids feel it. They feel when you believe them, when they share an experience and you start questioning them. That's your communicating your disbelief in them. It's why black students and brown students continue to seek out black and brown staff members because they know that they don't have to convince people to believe them, um, or believe in them or believe in them. So that just, that's an interesting concept and one I think to be very intentional about. About you can say things, but if it doesn't come across with authenticity or your actions don't show what you say, kids, Kids are all over that. Oh, I believe in you. And I treat you in no way that tells you that I believe in you. So um, yeah. I just thought that was yeah, very powerful. Yeah. And before we move on from mm-hmm. the intro, um, one thing
1: I would want our listeners to do, our intros now have changed, right? Mm-hmm. They've evolved, they're much longer. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're world-related, sometimes they're us-related. I just, you know, if you have any feedback for us on that, because mm-hmm. they used to be real like it was like four to 7 minutes. Right, of this an one's intro. 16. Yeah. Well, yeah. we had a lot to say.
0: Whatever. Yeah, but, yeah, but if
1: I, mean, I just you wonder. Yeah. I I don't I'm not saying we're going to change anything. I just wonder.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. Reflection from truth. Truth
1: um I just was wondering if can we as people critically like think critically enough to discern the truth? Like do we have that ability anymore in this country to like really think critically enough to start to figure out what is true and what is like being fed to us? uh modeled to us, like you know what I mean? Um I was reading something about Stacy Abrams' position on abortion. And prior to this, she didn't have like a hard stance one way or another, but she'd always just grown up pro-life, and that's was her belief. And when she went to college, um someone helped change her views and make her think differently and she is now pro-choice. Um, and so I just think like how was she able to, at that time in her life, to think critically enough to start to discern the truth and start to figure out what what is real in this and what have I been always been told? What did my environment bring to me? You know, that kind of thing. So I just, that was my reflection.
0: I love that reflection because I think it just, what I think about is like, can you ever get there if you're never hearing different perspectives and experiencing In place or putting yourself in places where you see different perspectives acting, you know, in practice. And so I think like you can read all these things, but if you continue to put yourself in a homogenous environment, and you know, specifically for me as a white person, if I continue to just center myself in whiteness all the time, like I can read the truth, but I, I never really see it because it's like, well, everything is so just is white, right? So I read these abolitionist books or I read these other perspectives, but yet I go about my day and I never really see those things in practice or talk to anybody who makes me see, helps me see something different, like a Stacey Abrams perspective. So I think, you know, that to me is the question for me to think about and hopefully our listeners. But my reflection is like, we often sometimes associate the truth with reading and then I wonder where do white people learn the truth through experiencing. Sure. So. why man great till they gotta be great. All right. So this week, uh, the episode Sorry, title do you not is. Have a reflection? What? Do you not have a reflection? Well, oh, that was my reflection. Oh,
1: yeah. I didn't. I mean, yeah. we didn't kind of like Sorry. turn to just you yeah. by yourself. Yeah. That I mean, okay. that okay. was kind Fair. of it. All right. Yeah. I just didn't know
0: if you had more to say. All right. Uh, so then the topic today is feeling race and racism. What a lovely feeling. And we said we got here kind of an extension from last week's conversation about the truth, plus mm-hmm. um, one of the four books that I'm currently reading. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's how we're getting to
1: a lot these days. It's from your readings. Do you from think the Holy so? Gospel.
0: <laughs> from what? <laughs> the Holy Gospel. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, book, improving... Stuck Improving Dakota Urbe. He is the um, he whole. He has a podcast called Racially Just Schools. You should listen to it if you are in education. Um, his book is called Stuck Improving, and I, I find I it to put be. I it in my Spotify, huh? I'm putting it in my Spotify. Oh, awesome! While you're talking, yep. Um, so probably some of the most meaningful um, content I've experienced through just my time recently, um, and so as I was reading it, there, there's some, there's some context in there about, um, black and brown people's representation as opposed to black and brown people's influence. And those are not the same. And so one of the things he says about the importance of ensuring black and brown perspectives and people are within an organization is because like their lived experience they don't have to believe, you don't have to make them believe all these things about race and racism in schools because it's the lived experience. And then our white people, that's probably kind of the problem with the strength of whiteness and the disbelief or the inability of people to do white people, to do equity work in schools is because you never feel it. So therefore you have to like make people. Someone has to tell you it's happening. Right. Right. So then therefore, and but oft and then white people, predominantly educators in school systems, at least in Minnesota. And so then they're the ones that are supposed to create the conditions in which you know, culturally, racially, linguistic, intellectually affirming spaces happen, but they don't, don't feel, feel the it. need to do it because all the spaces they're in do
1: that for them. Well, and even if you don't feel the need to do it. You you wouldn't even understand how to do it because you don't know what it feels like to not have it. So how do you create a space on something you don't know anything about, really? you know, or much about or don't quite get or can't feel? I don't understand.
0: Right. So I brought to you just kind of that concept of like, you know, if I can never feel racism, then what is my work or how can I get to a place where, I am dismantling or disrupting systems or practices um, because, I, because I can't feel it. So just the concept of feeling racism was something you and I had a conversation around. Yeah, and it's such a, it's an interesting concept
1: because, well, one, accurate, right? Like, can you? And then it's like a little bit like I was thinking about it. I'm like, well, well no, like how can in white people fundamentally change something they can't feel? And then I was like, well, is it possible even to ever get rid of racism because we're never going to get people to all people to feel it, to understand it? Like what, what has to happen to make it happen? Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense.
0: Right. And so, you know, we talked, we were just talking about um, if you, you can't change what you don't. So I don't feel it. Right. But I can listen to you talk about it. I can listen to students talk about it. I can listen to family members or community members talk about it. I can listen to other people. I can read narratives. I can read perspectives that are different than mine. I can listen to other people that are black and brown in this country and one, have my own internal learning and reckoning with someone else's perspective that I cannot feel. Right? And I think it was so the first to thing.
1: Yeah, just real quick, I think it goes back to your reflection. While doing that, I have to believe that narrative or that thing I'm reading or what that person's saying. I have to believe in them enough to like, this is their story. This is the truth. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. This isn't mine, but this is theirs. And if you don't have that belief... I don't know how you do that.
0: Right. So then, there, then just the concept of like, what happens? So then, let's say I'm doing that, I'm white, and now I'm starting to get uncomfortable, right? Here comes white fragility or white discomfort, right? And Natasha, I told you that the, there was one of the most powerful lines ever I've read that will stick with me, I think, for the rest of my time in education is that black and brown students benefit from white discomfort. Black and brown students benefit from white discomfort. I would say black and brown people in society benefit from white discomfort. And I think
1: I have a need to clarify, it's not the want for people to be uncomfortable, but things things in terms of race can't change unless white people are uncomfortable enough to understand it and make that change and to, to recognize their their role in that. So that, I mean... Yeah. It's not uncomfortable. Black and brown people are like happy when they, we're not happy when we run around. If I saw that you were uncomfortable and we're having a conversation about race, I'm not like, Oh yes, this is the best day of my life. That's not why I benefit. I benefit because you are learning because you're moving through that. What is uncomfortable? I hope because you're listening because you're taking it in. That's Mm -hmm. the benefit.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I think to, to have like, you know, inquiry to, to raise consciousness, right? I, I just tr- truly believe, like, you're not going to raise your racial consciousness if you aren't feeling something different than you've always felt, which is comfort. Perfect. Like, I just, I don't believe that. And so then I think, um, then there's concept of like, what happens when white people start to experience discomfort? Mm-hmm. In this perspective, there's four per- things that happen. They evade it, they ignore it, they seek to understand it. They consciously work to leverage it, and that's where we need to get people to seek to understand it. Here's where racist jokes. What do you comes consciously in? work to leverage it means? Like, how do you take that? To, or tell me what that means? To me, consciously working to leverage it would be um, so. Now I'm uncomfortable. Let's say I'm with all white people, and I'm hearing white people give feedback about what needs to happen to have something change, but I haven't sought the perspective. First of all, I haven't sought the perspective of the people who are impacted. So if I'm consciously working to leverage, um, white discomfort, I think when I'm listening to it, I'm understanding it. And then I'm, I'm consciously then seeking different perspectives. And I think I'm, then we're, then we're increasing our ability to talk about all of those perspectives as they, as they apply to the practice we're talking about. Right. You're sitting in the discomfort. I'm creating. I'm intentionally creating spaces where we are going to talk about a practice. In we're going to stay in education for a minute. Let's say discipline, and mm -hmm. let's say I'm listening to a lot of white educators talk about what should happen um, around discipline that starts to um, have themes of authoritarian compliance, doing things to kids, fixing kids, and I haven't talked to kids. So one, I want to seek to understand where's that coming from. Right. Right. Like, but then I think, what do I do with that information that I'm giving? And then how do I, um, how do I leverage that to make change, to make change? Yeah. And do, and how am I intentionally doing that? One, can I even listen and hear what are the themes that are coming up? Right. I have to put myself in spaces where I think I'm starting to listen to those things. And in those spaces, is there racial talk going on and if not how am i gonna consciously start to bring racialized language to that space because white people are real shifty right like we'll talk Ooh, about shifty. all we'll talk about all the things and we won't name race
1: well what i like about that the white discomfort concept about like the, there's the four things like i wonder as a listener if you can start to think about what do i do when i start to get uncomfortable and i and i believe in my experience that white
0: people Generally evade it or ignore it. Can we talk about the difference, what we believe the difference between evading white discomfort and ignoring white discomfort? So the way I see it is you
1: go to, you got racist Uncle Joe (laughs) and racist Uncle Joe, you know he's racist and there's a family barbecue coming up and racist Uncle Joe is going to be there. If I'm evading it, I'm not going to the family barbecue or I'm not going to be around racist Uncle Joe. I'm not going to talk with him because I know what's going to happen. So I don't want to be uncomfortable. I want to stay away from it. If I'm ignoring it, I go to said barbecue, I'm in conversation with racist Uncle Joe, and he says something racist, but I don't say anything.
0: If I seek to understand it, racist Joe makes a comment, I ask why. I might, yeah, What? tell me more
1: about what you mean about that. Why? Yeah. Why do you believe that? If I consciously work to leverage it, I might be in conversation. Now, racist Uncle Joe is probably an extreme, but maybe the people that are in that sphere, I might have some racial talk. Self-talk and that people can hear that they would understand and start to hear my language and work to leverage, like that I have a sphere of influence in that space that might not change racist Uncle Joe, but might change
0: um, semi racist Sally. And we're creating the conditions where we're not just so uncomfortable. And all of that, I would imagine, I'm if I mean, if I put myself in that, if I'm doing that, I'm not comfortable doing it. Like I'm not. I mean, there's going to be feelings of like. I'm, yeah, I just want to go fill my water. You know right, what I mean? I'm like going to get a beer. Yeah, like, that guy's starting to. Here he goes, jibber jabber, and I'm going to just le- go make another s'more at the campfire. I'm or, going home. Right, right. Time to go get the kids because I don't want the kids to be in this space. You know, again, depending on age of kids and what they're. But I think you know, like, what what are what are the places where you're? And and I think modeling the seeking to understand. You know, I think one of the biggest things is like people, white people, saying something around the concept of fear. Like I I fear. I'm afraid. I feel afraid. Um, you know, th- that that is really, really worth unpacking. Like, what makes you feel afraid? Why do you feel afraid? And if you can get to the root of race in that, as, no, I'm, right, we're talking about Unless race concepts is when we're talking violent. about. Right. What? Unless un- racist. Uncle Joel's also violent. Right. I, right. Might be but, afraid. I mean, I think when we're, when we're but talking about you. like, you know, yes. conversations in which race, you know, let's say like, you know, I think there's a real one, you know, around the concept of policing right now. And, you know, um you know, and carjackings and, you know, the concept of like, well, we need police to keep us safe. And, you know, what makes you feel that way? And who, you know, well, there's people that are carjacking, who, like, how does race come in? How do white people talking about fear and safety around policing and car, what are you lifting up? What comes into that?
1: But I think there's also fear in in the discomfort, like to say something to racist Uncle Joe. And I think, so there's a fear and like, what, what's the impact of what I say or do in this moment? And one of those things that might be helpful to remind yourself is that black and brown people benefit from white discomfort. So if your, your discomfort is your own fear, know that by stepping outside of that fear and by seeking to understand or consciously working to leverage it, you are also, you are actually helping black and brown, helping is weird word, but you know what I mean? Like, black and brown people will benefit from you doing that more than they will from you evading or ignoring it Mm -hmm. and sitting in your fear. Right, so,
0: so, and just that concept of you know of racial self-talk, we've talked a lot on this pod about journaling, about you, you know, have. your thoughts becoming your words. You can't you know, your actions probably don't come until your words. And then you know, recently just learned like race that to me, the, the the more formal definition or concept definition of that would be racial self-talk. And, and I like this concept. I think that's a it is a strategy, right? So
1: when you're looking at something like, what do I do? Racial self-talk is something you can do.
0: So there's different ways. Privately, when you're doing the Racial Healing Handbook and you're writing in your journal, um, you're having private racial self-talk. Okay. So it's important. It's, It's probably developing your racial consciousness, but it's probably not going out and really changing something. This is where I think a lot of white people don't feel like they're doing enough, right? Like I'm doing all this reading and I'm doing all this journey and I'm reflecting, but yet I don't feel like I'm doing anything. You are, but you're. That's all internal and probably not having an external impact, potentially. So then you go to um, semi-private. So that was private racial talk. Semi-private racial talk. Um, it's with it's with your safe person. You find the one person that you start all the time talking to talking about race with. You're safe. You and know, it's talking about. What your like? It's your own racial
1: self-talk. That's right. It's your thoughts and language, and it can be messy and it can be evolving. And there's no right in this. Right? It's not like you sit down and you have to say the right things. It is literally like, uh, you know, Molly, as my person that I'm going to talk with. Like, I am really struggling with that racial group of people. I do not understand why they are doing that. And like, it's it's unpacking that racial. Like conversation. It's getting totally. it out of your head and into a space. It's
0: it I think in another example is me saying, I, I'm probably being white here. I say it to you a lot, like just in conversation about like unpacking something that I experience. And I'm like, I just here's how I feel the whiteness of what I'm saying, or I'm thinking about this thing. And I'm not you're not judging me in what you're saying. It's space for me to just have this racialized self-talk with you. I'm processing something.
1: Yeah. You say it in terms of the pod too, because you say like, you'd like to talk about the pod more frequently. Like, what are we going to do? Like Mm -hmm. sooner than like the minute before, but you recognize like the impact that might have on me. And so like, you'll say, you'll name it and have a conversation where you name your whiteness and your ability to have that conversation. That's racialized Mm self-talk. Like, Otherwise, you're just saying like, "Oh, Natasha, like I need you to st- I need you to start talking about the pod early in the week." Right. That, I just I can't do it anymore. This is not th- good for me. So it's that it's naming race in a conversation that is actually like it's real,
0: right? So you've got semi-private one person. Then you have a team. You have a wine club. You have a book club. You have a wine exercise club. group. You have a team at work. That somewhere now you're racially. Family. You have a family. Your racial, your semi-private goes from my safe person to a to a team of people or to a group of people, and then you might take that to a department in an organization. So organizationally, you think one person, a team or a department, a team or a group to a department, right? In your life situation, you might think you know my my person my nuclear family. Now I'm outside of one person and I'm in, you know, maybe four people. And now I'm in a broader family setting or whatever. So Mm -hmm. multiple. Now I'm with racist Uncle Joe. Right. Right. So that's your semi-private. And then your public is, again, at an organizational level, at a community level that you're able to, in a, I would say what I would call a more public space, put your racialized um, self-talk in that space. Again, not to create this is what should happen, or this is right, or, or this you is, should believe this. Right. It is not that. It is your own talk about race. Yes. Your
1: own internal talk that's coming outside.
0: So I think the act, you know, they're here... We haven't done this in a while with our listeners, but so we're talking strategy today. We're giving you, um, I think, a really great activity, a reflection activity, and then an action activity. One, to start to d- internally think about, you know, how much private racial self-talk are you doing and in what ways? How much semi-private? Who's your one person? Who's your team or your department? Who's your, you know, bigger, bigger group of people? And then, you know, do you ever think on an on a more public space, what if you were provided the opportunity? Could you, would you, you know, do you have the talk to do it? Because because you're not gonna, and this is where I think what happens is <clears throat> let's take the school environment. Like we now have a staff meeting and all of a sudden we're going to do DEI work, equity work. And people in that space are at all varying levels of where their racialized self-talk right. is. And we expect people to just start jibber-jabbering about space, yep. about race. In that, That is not going to happen. The conditions have not been created for that Absolutely. to happen.
1: And I think ultimately what I like about the idea of racial self-talk in that practice, and that consciousness of it is so as a white person you are never going to feel racism you're you're just not going to feel it in your core um you might feel race like as a concept and a construct i don't know and so this is the opportunity to like dig into that and this is the way we change it by getting our own racialized self talk one to start to have the language to start to unpack our language to to be in conversations where that discomfort now becomes more comfortable, I should say. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so that's how we get to what I said earlier. Is it possible? I don't know, but that's how we get closer to it. Cause I sure as hell don't think it's going to happen unless we can start to do. And more people are in spaces where because of racialized self-talk, I can now dig into that DEI work and I can now uh, speak my truth and have those conversations with a broader group of people because I've done this work.
0: I lo- I mean, I, yeah, because I'm white, I don't feel racism. How do I talk about race in the space when I'm part of the group that is doing continual harm it's by saying some of that stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like I don't feel racism and I hold myself to a level of responsibility to create the conditions in a school or in a, or in a family or in a, you know, cause I think sometimes too, like I wonder about all these people that are listening and you know, like you all are a part of a family. Sometimes I think we think about like, what's, how does race relate to the job that I hold and what's your responsibility or your sphere of influence within your job to create conditions for better outcomes for black and brown people? And I think, do you hold that same level of thinking around what is my responsibility to create the conditions in an all white family for, you know, um, black and brown people to not be harmed when any of us come into interaction or when any of us go into spaces and jobs, we have, mm-hmm. you know, we're holding ourselves to having racial self-talk within our family. You know what I mean? Like sometimes right. I feel like equity work is like organizational work instead of like human life work in this Absolutely. Country. Human
1: life work. I love that. And here's the other thing, white people, your job isn't to feel racism. You're never going to, like. you're just not. So you don't have to do the work to like, it's not empathy, but do you know what I'm saying? Like to to like get to this place where you're like, Oh yeah, I get that because once I was discriminated against, because your job is to feel white supremacy and your (laughs) job is to like, to do the racial self-talk so you can get to the place where your discomfort can be leveraged to consciously make something better. That's what I believe. And I'm Right. Thank you for your time.
0: On (laughs) that, I have nothing to say. We'll see you next week. Deuces. Yeah,
1: I'm not feeling that.